Hopefully, you heard me say a while ago, we're going to be in John chapter 11. Uh, we finished John 10 up last week, continuing rolling on um, with our series in John. Um, and, and today um, is kind of an odd one for us, or for me, because it's the, the story of Lazarus. Um, and, and the story itself is about 44 verses. And normally, I don't like to cover that much ground. And so I, I basically banged my head against the desk all week long trying to figure out what in the world, how, how can we, we do this? Should we break it up? But, you know, anyway. So we're going to roll with 44 verses in, in John chapter 11 today, so we're going to roll on through it. Um, but go ahead and turn there, and, and we'll read that here in a bit. But do any of you share the same passion that I do that you hate road bumps, speed bumps? Yeah, yeah, I don't know anybody loves speed bumps. I despise speed bumps um, because they always seem to pop up at the worst time. It's always when I'm running late, and, and they always mess my pace up, and it's just aggravating, right? And, and no two speed bumps are alike, so you don't ever really know how to approach them. Like you can, some of them you can just basically cruise over without slowing down. It doesn't affect anything. Some, if you do that, it's going to tear the bottom of your car out. Um, but I, I just don't like speed bumps, um, and, and the thing is, is life is full of them, right? I mean, we face speed bumps, road bumps all the time. And, and what they do for the Christian is they want to, they want to make us question. Uh, they want to make us doubt. They, they want to um, throw us off. And, and we know, I mean, it's just it's tools of Satan to um, try to take our eyes and our mind off of Christ. But... For Christians, we, we need to learn to just simply trust in the fact that God is almighty, that God is all-knowing. Um, and then when those bumps happen and they catch us off guard, they're certainly not catching him off guard. Um, and, and we should be encouraged by the fact that he is sovereign over all things. Um, so I want to encourage you that when you face those moments in life that seem to want to wreck you, um, don't fall for the traps. Don't, don't fall into the obstacles that they keep our eyes from being fixed on Christ. Um, last week, we finished up John chapter 10, and, and we talked about the fact that trust triumphs unbelief, um, and, and just learning to trust Jesus in all things, to learning to rest in Jesus in all things, and and to find solace in the fact that he is a sovereign king. And today, we're, we're going to come to this familiar passage. I mean, if you were raised in church, you're familiar with Lazarus. If you have been partly raised in church, you're probably familiar with Lazarus. Um, and, and the danger is, is when we come to text like this, is we gloss over it. We read through it real quickly, like, oh yeah, I'm, in, I'm familiar with that. Let's go on to something I hadn't learned yet. But the danger with that is we miss so much. And, and that's part of why I don't like to cover 44 verses at one time because there's so much here. But I also didn't want us to get bogged down in the overall big picture of what we see in John chapter 11. And so we're going to look at the entire 44 verses. It's not the whole chapter, but the whole account of Lazarus. And, and as we work through this text today, our main idea is this, that fear and doubt try to rob us of life, but Jesus is the giver of life. And I want to pray for us, and we will dive in together.
Father, we come now to this time where we get to open your word. And I pray, God, that you have been preparing us for today, that you have been preparing us to hear your word, that you've been preparing us to be encouraged and be challenged by your word. And God, you know our hearts, you know our situations, you know what's going on in every one of our lives. And for some of us, God, we're doubting. We may be doubting the existence of who you are. We may be doubting the work of Christ. But some of us may know that you are real. And some of us may have surrendered to you. But we're just simply doubting your plans in our life. Because everything just seems like a train wreck. Some of us may be questioning your ways. And, and, and what's going on. And, and why things are happening. And some of us may just be stuck in a rut. So God, today we trust that you will remind us through your word, that you are great and greatly to be praised. It's such a joy to be able to gather with your people and to be able to dive into your word together. And so I do pray, God, that as we work through this text, that you will awaken us to the glorious truths of Christ. And that those truths will work in and through us to propel us forward on mission. Knowing that you are the one who has the keys to life and death. Not our situations, not any earthly thing, but you do. And so we can trust you with our entire lives. God, I'm asking that you would meet us here. For those who are broken, confused, downcast, God, that you would meet us where we are. For those who are stuck in a rut, that you would meet us where we are. For those who are doubting, you would meet us where we are. For those who are questioning, that you would just meet us where we are. So that we can, just as that first song we sang, proclaim, Oh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So God, be with us as we work through this text and glorify yourself in our time. It is in your most holy name that we pray, amen. So we're gonna dive in. We're gonna do this a little different than we usually do. Usually we read the whole passage up front, but again, it's a big passage, so we're gonna break it down into chunks. And the first thing that we're going to read and, and see um, in the first 16 verses is that Jesus loves. So starting in verse 1, we read this. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Miriam, her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus, Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and are going there again. And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? 
If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go, let us also go that we may die with him. Again, this portion, we're going to be looking at the idea that Jesus loves. And right off the bat, in the beginning, we see three main characters, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Um, These are siblings who were very well known in their area. Um, They were pretty prominent uh, family, actually, and and Lazarus was the baby of the bunch. And these are people who were close followers of Christ. Um, They had witnessed the power of God. They had witnessed Jesus' work, miracles. Um, This is the seventh sign um, of that we see in the Gospel of John. So they had seen the work of Jesus time and time again leading up to this point. And so when they, they realize that their brother is ill, they seek out Jesus to help because they know that he is the only hope. They know that he has the power to heal their brother, to, to make him well. At this point, he's still alive. And what's interesting is that as we work through this, we see a lot of similarities to other things that have happened so far in the Gospel of John. As we get to verse 4, we read, But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So just like we saw in John chapter 9 with the blind man, there is an illness there, there is an infirmity there that is meant solely for the purpose of giving God the glory. Now again, as we talked about it back then, this is not God making him ill. This is not God killing Lazarus, but this is simply the effects of sin. But we see that God will use Jesus to display his glory as he takes on sin and its effects. And the reality is this, that through life's storms, you can trust that Jesus is working all things for good. We see that promise in Romans chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So the stage is set. We have met Lazarus. We know Mary. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is Mary Magdalene and her sister Martha. We know that Lazarus is ill. And, and we hear that Jesus is saying that this illness is going to display the glory of God. Then it gets interesting. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, if you have a loved one who is deathly ill and someone calls you, what is your response going to be? You're going to go as quickly as you can. But it says Jesus loved him, so he stays two two days longer. Now, again, this is all setting the stage for Jesus to display his glory. So verse 4 is a key verse here. This illness is to display the glory of God. It is to show the power 
of God. So when Jesus hears that his friend is hurting, when Jesus hears that his friend is ill, he stays. The question is why? Because you can't just simply look at something like that and just skip over it, but you need to desperately ask why. Why would he stay if his friend is dying when he two things, he loves him dearly and his family and he has the power to heal him? He stays because he loves them greatly. And as we work through this text, you'll see why. Because his love kept him where he was so that he could fully display the glory of Father later. And this is also grace. Because he is simply prepping his closest followers for something that will happen pretty soon. And that's his own death and resurrection. So there's a lot of things at play here. It's not simply that Lazarus is ill. But Lazarus is ill and his illness will go to to display the glory of God. And Jesus hears this message and he stays put because he deeply loves them. He deeply loves his followers. Now, as we move on, verses 7 through 10, we read this. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. So this is after the two days. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So again, the disciples are afraid because as, as we ended John chapter 10, the, disciple, I mean the, the Jews are so irate with Jesus that they attempt to stone him. But as he typically does, he slips out. And, and I, one thing that's interesting to me, and, I, and I'm a visual person, so I try to paint pictures, but we see this happen several times where, where Jesus escapes and so I, I always kind of want to know, well, how does he do that? Is it like a more miraculous thing where he just kind of disappears? Or, or does the crowd get so big that he just kind of slips out? It's, it's just an interesting thing to me. But he is, they've just escaped um, from the Jews, and, and they're pretty close proximity. So they're only two miles away from where they need to be and where they just were. And so it's not like they've completely set themselves you know, in secret, but they're, they're just simply resting in a place where they're, they're pretty close to Jerusalem or they're going to a place that's pretty close to Jerusalem. So the heat is definitely there. And the disciples are terrified. They're terrified because of their life. They, they simply don't want to die. They, they just witnessed their leader attempted to be stoned and now he's wanting to go right back into the middle of the fire. But I love what we see in verses 9 through 10, how Jesus begins to encourage them to trust. And he says, it's time to walk in the light. What does that mean? Basically what Jesus is doing for his disciples, he's reassuring them that they can trust him because he is the light of the world. He knows all things. There is nothing that's going to happen to them in Bethany that he's not aware of. There's nothing that's going to happen to them during their time there that he, that he will be called off guard by. And so he's encouraging them to just trust him all the more. Trust in the leading of the Savior. Trust in the leading of Christ. He's light in the dark. And, and isn't it awesome how Jesus uses these simple illusions sometimes to just almost simmer them down a little. 
walk in the light. And so that really leads us to a personal question is, are we trusting Jesus to lead us? Are we actually doing what he's called us to do? Are we leading the life that he's called us to live? Are we walking in the light? Or are we still trying to do things our own way that we have calculated all the, the benefits and all the, the negatives and we, we're trying to, to, to figure out, that well, this is why I need to do this or this is why I don't need to do that instead of just simply hearing the voice of God say, go and go. And, and I think that's often what we do. We get so caught up in our own mind and, and we get in our way and we're not trusting the Spirit to lead us. We're not trusting God to lead us. And that's really what happened to the disciples here. They were more afraid than they were trusting. They were more afraid of being killed by the Jewish leaders than they were trusting the Savior of the world who was in their midst. And it's not like he hadn't proven himself time and time again to them, right? This is not their first rodeo. But it's so hard to trust in Christ sometimes. It's so hard to follow the leading of Jesus. So are we trusting him? Are we, are we walking in the light? But in the midst of their doubt, Jesus assures them and he calls them to go. Again, verses 11 and following. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin. This is doubting Thomas, by the way. Um, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Now, the interesting thing is, as I was working through commentaries, when you read that at face value, it's like, man, doubting Thomas has got a little bit of a little spunk. Let's go. Let's do this. But actually, if you read it in the original, what Thomas is actually doing is something pretty sarcastic. He, he's not being serious. He's not saying, okay, let's go. Let's die with him. You know, charge on. No, what he's saying is like, really, guy? You're going to lead us into this so we can die too? Lazarus is dead. Okay, there's not much we can do. So you want us to die as well? That's basically the posture Thomas is taking. Poor Thomas. He just doesn't get it, does he? Thankfully, later he will. But there's one more thing that's interesting here, all right? So, and, and we've pointed this out before, but oftentimes we paint Jesus in this light of being, you know, visually appealing, you know, everything's proper. I mean, he's the son of God, right? He's wearing white with a purple sash, and he's got pretty brown flowing locks, uh, blue eyes. That's not who Jesus was. Jesus was a rough, rugged carpenter who actually, from what we read in Scripture, had a pretty good sense of humor. And, and sometimes the, the way that Jesus responds is pretty witty. Um, and, and it's almost like he's taking a little jab at his followers a little bit. Like, really? I mean, after all this, this is how you're going to respond? And, and sometimes the way he says stuff just makes us think, what in the world is going on here? Example, his friend Lazarus is ill, so what's he do? He stays. And now, 
when they miss the point, when he says that Lazarus has fallen asleep, they miss it. So he says plainly, Lazarus has died. But look how he follows that up. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. That's an odd statement, right? So he's saying to his closest followers, "My, my dear friend Lazarus, our brother has died. But for your sake, I'm glad glad we weren't there. Now, I'm not sure, because the scripture doesn't say this, how the disciples received that, but that probably was a pretty pivotal moment for them. Because what, what they just heard was the fact that Jesus cared for them enough that he allowed his, his brother, his dear friend Lazarus, to die. So that he could reassure them that he is who he says he is. He's glad, again, because he loves them enough that he's letting these things take place so that he can show them his power. So that he can reassure them. So that he can prepare them, again, for a very similar situation that's going to happen pretty soon. And that's his own death and resurrection. See, here's the thing. They're afraid because of their life. But following Jesus is never promised to be easy. It's not. But the thing is, is that we can trust him because of his love for us. Time and time again in scripture, he proves himself to us. Romans 8, I mean, you know this. I just read it a while ago. It's probably my favorite text in all of scripture because we see just how great the love of the Father is for us. And that his plans cannot be thwarted, that his plans cannot be diminished. And he's working all things for good. So when you do doubt, and when you do question, and when you are afraid, know that Christ has the best interest of his followers at heart. All time. That never diminishes, that never fails. There is never a moment where he's saying, oh, well, I'm going to let them burn on this one. No. In reality, he's saying, I'm going to let them go through this so that I can assure them that I'm great and greatly to be praised. And so he reassures his followers that he loves them dearly. So Jesus loves, but Jesus also assures Look at verses 17 through 19. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So again, the details here are significant, right? Again, Bethany is only two miles away from Jerusalem. So again, the heat of um, those that are wanting Jesus dead is still very much... Um, in range of being felt, and there's still a lot of tension in the air. Um, But they go anyway, despite any of that, uh, because Jesus knows that his plans cannot be thwarted. He knows that his time is set, and that his time has not yet happened, and not yet occurred. And so he's doing the works of his Father faithfully and willingly. But he also, we see this, that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And there's a lot that's packed into that, right? Um, culturally, um, the rabbis actually would teach that the spirit of a body would hover over the dead body for like three days. 
uh, before they actually moved on. And so the fact that he's been dead four days goes with the Jewish teaching that many of them were following and many of them were, were trusting in. But also, by four days, rigor mortis is set in and he stinks, right? The body is decomposing, um, you know, the embalming was, was not a common thing at this time period. It, it happened some, but, but not usually. And, but, so they would use um, these, these methods of wrapping in linen cloth, and, and they would use spices. Again, this is why the gifts of the Magi towards Jesus were so important, because they were preparials for death. Um, but, but you see how they would, would go through this process. So Lazarus has been dead. He's been in the tomb for four days. And it says that many Jews had come to them to console them. Now, Bethany is a small village, but we said, I said earlier, Mary and Martha and Lazarus were from a prominent family. This is a home that Jesus and his disciples had visited frequently. All right? And, and being a small village, even only two miles out, you're not going to have massive crowds of people going to this family's house to mourn with them. But because they're such a prominent family, people are flocking to, to share their condolences and their love for, for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And so Jesus enters into the midst of that. And, and we've seen the faith of these people prove time and time again, right? We, again, Mary, she anoints the feet of Jesus with oil and washes his feet with her hair. And, and, and Martha has served time and time again. Um, and you see just different gifts of that family, which is a beautiful thing. But Moving on to verse 20, we say, So that when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you, have been, if you had been here, my brother would have not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Martha's faith is deeply rooted in Christ. They, they had witnessed his work and she trusted him. You know, it says a lot that she would go out to meet Jesus and, and encourage and really just say that she was encouraged that he was powerful. Jesus, you're too late, but I know that if you'd have been here, he would not have died. But, but even now, I know that if you just simply speak, he will live. She's trusting in the power of God. She doesn't understand how the whole situation is going to play out, but she's trusting in the power of God. And so Jesus responds, he says to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So what we see here is that Martha is a, a woman of deep faith. She's trusting in Jesus, but she's also pretty knowledgeable in what they believe. Uh, because their, their, their beliefs were teaching that there would be a resurrection on the last day, that, that when the Messiah would come, that, that there would be a resurrection on the last day. And so she's trusting in that teaching. She's not understanding that Jesus is about to raise her brother right then. She's just simply thinking, yeah, I know he's going to live. You know, he's going to be resurrected at some point, but, you know, we're still sad and we still want a brother. So Jesus says in verse 25, And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again, verse 24, on the resurrection of the last day. And so Jesus responds in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. 
So Jesus, again, assures her that Lazarus will rise. And again, she's not quite understanding his plan. So he asserts his authority by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. These I am statements occur several times in the Gospel of John. And they're always to assert the authority of who Jesus is. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is assuring her that I have the keys to life and death. I have the power over this. That grave does not have power. I have power. And this is really a beautiful picture of the Father. It's a, it's a picture of grace that he's affirming her that her brother will live. And it's also grace, again, and, and this is a common theme throughout these verses, that he's preparing his closest people um, for his death. Because by doing this, he's not simply showing them that resurrection is theoretical, but he's showing them that it's possible and that it's probable. So it's not just a, an abstract belief that, yeah, there's going to be a resurrection from the dead or resurrection on the last day, which at that point nobody's going to know, right? Because in their thinking, they're, they're all dead at that point. But So it, it's not something that's going to happen then, but it's something that could very well happen now through the power of Christ. And, and so he is affirming to them that there's a day coming when he will die, but he will raise. And he not only has the power to raise Lazarus, but he has the power to raise himself. And that's why he asked the question in verse, at the end of verse 26, do you believe this? So he tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe me? Do you believe me? And isn't that just simply a question for every one of us? Do we believe? Do we believe this? See, Jesus offers hope to the broken by assuring that he has authority over life and death. And it's this truth, the truth that he does have authority over life and death, that propels us forward on mission. That leads us on to do the work that he's called us to do. Because if he has authority over life and death, then there's nothing that can happen in this world that can diminish our relationship with the Father. Nothing. So Jesus loves and Jesus assures, but Jesus also weeps. Starting in verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So after the encounter of Martha and Jesus, she goes back to her home, she gets Mary and tells her, Jesus is waiting for you. Now, there are so many weird theories about what's going on here, but I think the simplest theory and that makes the most sense is because of all the crowds, they're just simply wanting privacy with their, with their, with their Lord. Again, they were really close to Jesus. This is basically like their brother. And to get away from the crowd, she goes to meet Jesus in private. And unfortunately, it's not very private because she's followed by all these mourners, right? 
And, and the reason she's followed is because they're probably thinking she's sneaking off to go to the tomb. And, and you know, so at this point, it, maybe it was a private burial type deal where they, they weren't exactly sure. So they were going to go and um, Jewish funerals were, were big to-dos there um, in their culture. Um, it, didn't rem- it didn't matter if the family was dirt poor. This is a prominent family, but even if the family was dirt poor, they were required um, by the law to, to purchase two flute players and a professional wailing woman, right? So a lady who would professionally weep and mourn. So it was this dark and depressing time, right? And so what, what we see is, is Mary goes to meet Jesus and she's followed by all these folks. And she kind of reiterates what her sister had said. If you'd have been here, Lazarus would still be alive. But then that's when things really began to take to another level. Verse 33. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. And his spirit, and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Now, there's a... there's a lot of misinterpretation with what's taking place here. And I want to hopefully unpack on why that's the case. Again, these Jewish funerals were not happy times. They were, they were very down. They were very depressing. And they had lost their brother. And they had lost a friend. And, you know... They have to have these people who probably didn't even know Lazarus, a professional whaler. And they all come in, and, and when Jesus sees this, it says that he's deeply moved in his spirit, and he's greatly troubled. And then we immediately follow that with the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. So if you ever play Bible, Bible trivia, you need to know that. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And we immediately think, oh, the deep compassion of Jesus. That Jesus is weeping over his brother. But here's what we actually see. Would it make sense that Jesus would weep over the death of Lazarus if he went there knowing he was going to raise him from the dead? No. What Jesus is weeping over is sin and the effects of sin. Because what he's seen here is that sin has caused his dearly loved brother to die. But what we also see is this. You have all of these people who are followers of God and they're mourning in a way that they're showing that they have no hope. They're displaying that they have zero hope in what they say they believe and that's the resurrection on the last day. They're displaying no hope at all. And so Jesus weeps. He's deeply moved in his spirit and he's greatly troubled because of the lack of hope that is displayed by his people. And he does have compassion on them. He does have compassion on this family. But the compassion is simply that he's broken over sin. And so he weeps. And this is probably something that would catch us off guard. You know, we... 
especially though because many of them expected him to be the Messiah and be this powerful ruling man, and here he comes in and he's weeping. He's weeping because of sin. He's weeping because the effects of sin. But the reality is, is that if we have trusted in Christ, that we have plenty of hope. And we all mourn when we lose loved ones. That's, that's a given. We're sad, and our spirit is hurting. But the way we mourn should differ if we know that that person is a child of God. See, because if we trust that that person is trusted in Christ, and if we know that that person knows Jesus, then we know that death is not the end. It's simply the beginning. And so we, we mourn for a little bit, but then we rejoice. We rejoice that God has been so good. We rejoice that that person had trusted in Christ. And that what may be a sad moment for us is actually the best moment in their life. They're standing before the Savior. But these followers were just displaying zero hope. And the reality is that death brings fear and doubt, but Jesus has defeated death forever. And that's our hope. That's why we can hope. That's why we can trust in the greatness of Christ, because He has defeated death forever. And so He weeps. Why? Because sin grieves the heart of God. Sin is led to the death of his brother Lazarus. Sin leads to death here. But Jesus is the giver of life. Jesus loves. Jesus assures. Jesus weeps. And Jesus resurrects. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Sound familiar? And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? I love that line. He asked the question earlier, do you believe what I'm telling you? And now he's saying... I told you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. Now again, this just affirms that she didn't understand that Jesus was about to raise Lazarus right then. She was just longing for a future resurrection. So Jesus comes, and, and the tomb, so much like the tombs in that culture, were typically carved into the side of a, a hill, in like a cave-like structure. Sometimes they were for individuals, but usually they were for about eight people. Um, they were typically designed where they would carve it that would go in deep and it would have these um, little inserts um, carved out where you would typically have three on each side and then two at the end. And so each tomb would typically hold eight people. Um, this one, I'm not really sure. Usually your more prominent folks would be able to have a smaller tomb. Um, sometimes they would have a tomb carved out for their family. Um, but whatever the case, this is very similar to the tomb that Jesus was laid in. It was carved into the side of a mountain with a very heavy stone rolled in front. And that stone, what it would do, now while it's probably not airtight, it would seal off a lot of the odor, but it would also keep 
um, people from breaking in and trying to steal valuable items. And so Jesus comes up and he says, all right, move the stone. And, and Martha kind of objects because she's still not quite believing what Jesus is saying. And she's like, well, now the odor, there, there's going to be a stench. Why put us through this? Our brother has died and we've mourned. And now you're here and you want us to go through this all again. But you don't want us to simply go through it. But you want us to see him in this decomposing state. And that's when Jesus in verse 40 said, told you if you believed you're going to see the glory of God again that's the question for us are we believing if we're instructed that we're to glorify God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and that we find our ultimate joy in that then why so often do we doubt? We doubt when we're not finding joy, but we're not finding joy because we're doubting. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. I love the way that God has designed that. We are called to give him the most glory. And then in doing so, we don't find prison and we don't find, you know, a lack of want. We find joy. Our joy and our enjoyment of God comes from glorifying God. And so really that applies so greatly to us in our lives. That I tell you, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. If we follow him with everything we have, you're going to see the glory of God. You're going to give God glory, but you're going to experience the glory of God as he gives you the greatest joy. The greatest joy. So verse 41, they moved the stone. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe you are, that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, I know some of you are not visual, but you got to picture this, right? So imagine that this is a larger tomb, a family-type tomb. And Jesus had just told them, you're going to see my glory. And he tells them to move the stone. And they move the stone. And what they see is at the end of the room, Lazarus, not laying there, but he's standing up. Now he's kind of a shell because the way they would do it is they would take this massive linen cloth, so they would tie the hands together so they wouldn't go off and and they would cover the face but then they would take this long linen cloth and they would put it at his feet and then they they, or at his head and they would wrap it all the way around maybe that's backwards they would start his feet and wrap it around his head and back down to his feet so almost mummified not in a mummy wrapped like that but you know he's he's pretty wrapped tightly that's that's how they would do that and so jesus they they look and they see this man standing there and and he says lazarus come out and and lazarus can't because he's kind of bound so he 
They send folks in there to untie him, and here is Lazarus, who's been dead for four days, and now he's alive. I mean, I'm I'm just saying, that's not common. That's not a common occurrence. And these people who, who were mourning and, and weeping and were broken because of the loss of their brother now see him standing alive in a tomb. Now, what was the point of this? The point is to show that Jesus gives life. He has authority over life and death. And, and just as Jesus gave Lazarus new life, he can give you new life if you simply trust in him. But if you can't see the similarities between this account of Lazarus and what we'll see in a few chapters when Jesus is dead and in a tomb and resurrects, I'm sorry that you can't see that. The beauty of how God unfolds his plans in scripture. The beauty of how he does this for us. He's not, he's not writing this just because he felt like writing. He's doing this for us. He allowed sin to take Lazarus' life so that he could prove to his followers that he lifts the dead from the grave. Because in just a few short months, he would be in this very same predicament. But the difference is, is he's not relying on somebody outside of a tomb to say, rise up. Because we just learned pretty recently that I give my life and I take it back up again. So Jesus has authority over life. Jesus has authority over death. But I want to show one more thing that's really intriguing about these last few verses. In verse 41, it says, They took away the stone. Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, thank you that you have heard me. Now, again, it's important to understand why the language is used here the way it is. Because what this is showing us, it's it's past tense. So he's saying that this plan was already in place. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's not going to mourn Lazarus. He's not going, you know, to do all these other things. Only he's going with the intentional purpose of raising Lazarus from the tomb. This is something that was already set in motion. So when he gets here, he says, I give thanks for this. Thank you for hearing me. He says that before he tells Lazarus to come out. He, tells, he, he prays this prayer before the miracle actually happens because this was already set in motion. Thank you for hearing me. And then I love that he throws that in there. Like I know you always hear me, but I said this so all the people around me could see that. Again, this is all Jesus showing us his power. It's verse 4. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So again, all the way back, do you remember those road bumps that you face in life? 
when you face those aggravating things, those things that make you angry, they make you um, question, they make you doubt. You don't have to. How should we then live? I want you to hold your finger there and I want you to flip over real quick to Revelation chapter 21. So how can we face death? How can we face doubt? How can we face all of these trials and still trust? This is how. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And I know I only put verses 1 through 4 on there, but I'm going to read verse 5 too because that's the kicker. And he who was seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. So how do we trust? How do we trust when fear and doubt are trying to rob us of life? We trust by knowing that Jesus is the giver of life and that he has the authority over all life and death. And that one day, there is a day coming where he will make all things new. Death will be no more. Tears will be no more. Weeping will be no more. Mourning will be no more. And we will simply be with him as his people and he with us as our God. So Christians live in the hope of the future knowing that Jesus defeated every sin and destroyed death forever. Jesus called Lazarus out of that tomb and Jesus himself came out of the tomb as well. That's why we can proclaim that death has been swallowed up in victory. So I pray that you trust in Jesus. If not, maybe today through God's word he has shown his greatness to you. Let's pray. Father, We do give thanks for Christ and the life he gave for us and our place for our sin. And I pray, God, that you will use this time to convict us of our sin if we have not trusted in you and that you will bring light into the darkness. Encourage us today through the power of your word and through the goodness of your son. It's in Christ's name we pray.